Hey everybody, welcome back. It's another episode of Everything is a Spring. Derek, how are you, buddy? Jim, I'm back, doing good. Uh, moves about 75% complete, and we gotta be out by the 15th, so sorry, listeners. I got one person that asked, Yo, where's our episode last week? So uh, folks actually missed it, but uh, again, my fault. Don't blame Jim, but hopefully after the 15th of February, you know, we'll be, I'll be good to go as far as our regularly scheduled program and, uh, you know, recording on Saturday, editing on Sunday, and hopefully out by Monday approach, because that works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's all good. So the thing is, it's just, um, it, you know, scheduling can be really tough, uh, especially like as an adult, I've come to find that like that is really the logistics of getting people together is really tough sometimes. Yeah. Uh, just, especially because you know we're we're you know obviously both of us have a lot of responsibilities outside the podcast so it can be tough yeah you know and like we were talking a little bit before the show and it's it's like it's not that the podcast isn't fun it's like me getting to sit down for like you know an hour up to 2 hours uninterrupted is tough nowadays um it's doable on digitally but yeah it it The hardest part for me is recording, editing, you know, if I need to take an extra day, you know, that can be done. I can walk away from it. But, you know, I've I'm really happy with the product we've put out so far. I like the way that the show's kind of evolving. Me, too. I think we're moving in a great direction. And I think 2024 is going to be a good year for us. So um, that's facts. Like, I am surprised. It's already February and I don't know what happened to January. Yeah, time loop. I don't know. This, this whole year, it's like so much happened in one month. Like if you even look on the like scaled out version on the macro scale of the world, we're starting to look like 1986 again. Um, Man, it's bonkers. Right? And personal life, it's, it's just been moving. Like I have not sat down either at like my actual job, you know, trying to plan cool things for the podcast, uh, personal life things. And, uh, you know, I've just been as close to a gearhead as I'll ever be, you know, just kind of wrenching on the car, uh, pretty much preparing it for its first uh, Porsche dealership, uh, you know, like inspection, which is going to cost a lot. But I figured post-purchase, it'd be a good idea to have them do a once-over. That's fair. Oh, man. Yeah, it's uh, January. Wow. Did you have any, like, New Year's resolutions that you've already lost out on? Yes. Yes, I have. I don't know. Can I talk about that? Yeah, I, I've, of course, one of them was work related, right? I was like, I, I want to try to, you know, really own my time at work because, you know, new employee, you're trying to put your hand in every jar and like, you know, get as much experience and be as helpful as you can to like, you know, be mutually beneficial. And in three years, that has to say backfired is the wrong word because I've got a lot of opportunities. I'm working on some projects I'm actually really proud of. And like, it's fun to see the career development potential there. But it, if you're just available all the time, they're going to use it, man. They're going to oh, use yeah. it. I, I've worked like average 48 ish to 50 hours a week since October. Uh, which is more than I'm supposed to, but it's just we've had so much going on and I'm working with folks in different time zones, just trying to be a nice person and accommodating and also anger because I've been pissed for the last like six years of my life. So I've been trying to, if not, not be angry, at least not show it or, you know, handle it in an effective way. And I'll admit, like around January 15th, 
I had to go on a drive where I did not, I did not scream. I didn't yell. I didn't really say anything, but, uh, allegedly the driving was not defensive to say the least. So I, I kind of failed in my goal there, but Hey, for once in a month, that's not terrible. No. And, and you know, as, as someone who's dealt with, you know, anger management or whatever, my whole life, uh, it, it is really like an ongoing process. It's not something you just put behind you and, and then you're good. Yeah. You know, it, it is, it is a struggle that you kind of deal with constantly. Um, it's in the moments too. It's like, I could be great for six months. Right. But if the wrong seven things happen at the same time, you know, it's how you react to that overwhelming. Absolutely. And I've been getting a lot better. And I think, you know, having my pop here and having to caretake him, it, it begs necessity. So that's helped me a lot where I'm dealing with not crises. That's a little dramatic, but you know, mitigating fall risk, rushing to the urgent care every now and then before that stuff would get me not frazzled, but you, it's easier now to detach myself from the situation and get the job done. And if I can translate that into, I guess, the relationship space later and, you know, calm approach and, you know, I can be serious and efficient without being overbearing or, uh, you know, sounding mean. Because that's one thing I'm just used to how my friends talk to each other. We tell it like it is. Um, that yeah. doesn't translate well to, you know, new friends and folks. It's just like, I, I gotta, you know, put a little sugar on top of the, <laughs> <laughs> the medicine as it goes down, so to speak. Yeah, I've, uh, oh man, I wish people would just be a little bit more straightforward. Just tell me what it is. Just like, get it out there. Come on, buddy. Like, let's just, you know, do you, do you want me to, do you want me to not do that? Do you want me to do more of it? Like, just yeah, tell, tell me. me what you want, baby. Come on, girl. <laughs> tell me what you want. I'm at a point in my life where I'm willing to learn. Like, let's work together. Yeah, I, but it's, it's been interesting. My view on relationships, not to make the preload too long, right? I, I absolutely refuse now to lose pieces of myself like I have in the past. And also, like, I've been trying to get better at not putting all of my life on someone else. It's not their responsibility. The problem I'm running into, folks say that they want to be there emotionally or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And that's until the day comes, right? Like, right. Where I can't answer the phone for X amount of time or X amount of hours. I've been trying to do well with communicating that with my friends and stuff. But, you know, everyone who knows me personally, like you, you know, I think Kosh, Jim, Kelly, um, I, friends from college that have been around me for so long, they know me not answering the phone is not because I don't want to. It is because something is going on and um, I will be back. But uh, communicating that effectively, especially as someone as antisocial as I am, just at my core has is been tough. But I realized before I can have a meaningful, long-term, serious relationship, a lot in my life has to change. And a lot in me has to change. I'm just not in the place right now. And accepting that has felt delicious. Well, that's good. I I'm glad that you've, you've kind of come to some peace with that. Um, I know that was stressful for a while there. So, um, But I do think, like, I, I kind of agree with you on a lot of that, where it's just like I'm not as willing to change myself so readily someone else right like, yeah like obviously there are it. some if things something, yeah, if that's the kingpin we can work together let's talk but you right. know some people are very and i don't know if this is social media with the instant gratification situation on you can get any information you want if mm. i want to see this kind of tiktok for example here's 87 more people that do the exact same thing instantly 
Right. Um, patience has become not only a virtue, but really rare, like true patience. Because yes. I, I know what it's like to, you know, deal with folks that are like nurses. And their schedule is erratic. They're up all night because they worked all day. And, you know, it takes a lot of effort on both parties to understand that as someone who's not a nurse and then understand the other side of it. Like, there's, it goes both ways. And what I've learned, it's really made me appreciate my friends um, so much more than I already did. Not because I didn't before, but just understanding that they're reading me as an individual and adjusting their way of dealing with me to what they know about me. And they're, they're, the grace that they give us is um, really appreciated, especially in this hard time in my life. This has been the hardest year of my life, I would say, by far, um, just the last six months. I won't get into the details, but uh, I've seen some growth that I'm proud of. Did yeah. you have any New Year's resolutions that just up and down out the window? <laughs> um, not exactly. So I, I don't actually really believe, quote unquote, in New Year's resolutions. I think they're very like... I, I think that they are too easy to uh, ignore, right? Because and also like, if I'm gonna if I want to change something, I'd rather just change it. Like I'd like let's just start now, right? That's a good attitude to have about it, though. Like you don't need the you know the rock to go around the sun one time to right. need change. Well, because because that actually also, in my opinion, makes like failure much more easy. Oh, you're saying right? because it's like scheduled. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah how because many gym if you're saying are getting like renewed in February right now, exactly right. Like so, that's the whole thing for me, at least. And I'm not like a psychologist, so I don't know how it works. But like for myself, I've I've noticed like if I'm like sitting down and vegging out on the couch, like scrolling through YouTube or whatever, and I'm like, okay, at, at you know, let's say it's nine twenty-five or whatever. I'm like, okay, at nine thirty, I'm gonna stop. Okay, right? like I'm gonna stop. Like at nine thirty, I'm cutting it off. Well, I'll get absorbed in the video, and it'll be 9.31, and I'm like, ah, crap. Okay, well, at 9.35, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll get off. But because I guess it's just like I like the, the fives. Like, the fives are, like, nice, clean, even yeah, numbers. easier to manage. Yeah, but, like, what that ends up doing, though, is that now, instead of getting off of my computer or getting off of my phone and actually going doing something worthwhile – because I've got it in my head that I have to do it at like this nice even time, it makes it actually harder to stop doing it. Right. It's like, oh, I'll just get the next block. I did that exactly. all the time in college. That was my really bad habit with studying. It's like, oh, I plan to study at 7.30, at 7.05. Let me wait till, you know, 8, right? Like, you know, oh, yeah. shoot, I missed the deadline. Let me, and you just keep pushing it and pushing it. Exactly. So instead of that, it's just like, just, just do it now. <laughs> Let me stop being on YouTube right now. Um, but in, in, so like, that's kind of like my caveat to this, but in more seriousness, um, I am really like trying to cut down on my soda intake <laughs> because, uh, I, I need to drink more water. Uh, and I've made some progress. Like I don't have soda in the house anymore. I just have water. That's half the battle um, right there. Which is good. Uh, but when I'm going out, it's still like too easy for me to buy sodas. So next, my next step really, I think, is to actually start eating in more. Like start cooking. Um, start cooking. And that is something I really want to do. But it's something that I have trouble with. Not because like I'm not, I think I'm actually okay at cooking. Like I'm not horrible. And most of I'd what say I so. do is like. Like I've I just, had like, many of gym steaks. You know, we've cooked a lot of meals over the years, if you think about it. 
That's true. Yeah, but like a lot of that's cool. grilling though. That is true. We um, do be grilling. We do be grilling. But and I love grilling. I actually like actively really like grilling. Um cooking is fine. Like I I'm not really like super one way or the other about it. But um I hate with a burning passion. I hate going to the store. <laughs> oh, you know, I have we could talk offline. I got really into meal prep for a little while before my life changed and it was yeah. great. Like I was healthier, like I was eating, you know, in the house, I would say 6 days a week and I might treat myself once on the weekend, right? Yeah. Uh but it, I had a real bad habit with DoorDash last year. Like that was my New Year's resolution for 23 was I am it's too convenient. I'd moved to the city. I'm not used to anything being able to be delivered except for like a pizza and you know where I right. grew up. And all of a sudden, it's just like you can have you anything you want in 45 minutes, like any restaurant you've seen, uh, alcohol if you want. It. And it just became a rabbit hole where it's just like, I'm busy all day. Let me pack my schedule full of stuff and yes. I'll just DoorDash some food. So technically yes. getting more done, but I'm spending, what, $45, $50 on one meal. It's just untenable. It's, yeah, it's not not achievable. And like I'm kind of in that same boat where like my day to day is so busy um, it, it's hard to find the time to go to the store, especially since I really don't want to go to the store, <laughs> man. I'm um, telling you some meal prep stuff know. where you can get some like mostly shelf stable and you're really only going to the store like once a week for your fresh. Yeah. I, I'm a huge believer in the freezer, man, a deep freezer. Yeah. I see why my mom was like, take the chicken out the freezer before I get home. Because yep. I get it now. It's just like, wow, I put this chicken breast out yesterday and now I have it. So it's my responsibility to cook it before it goes bad. And it kind of yep. drives that, oh, I have all these other like frozen vegetables I've like prepared or whatever. And uh, meal yep. preps just so nice because you can do all the work one or two days out of the week. And if you store it properly, I'm talking good, good food all week and you can change it up if you get bored. That's true. Yeah, and, and I do have some friends here locally that are um, like starting to get into that meal prep game. Hmm. So I've, I'm kind of being inspired by them to also try to kind of push that forward. Um, but it is tough um, just because it's 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 not only breaking an, an old habit that I, I really don't like, uh, but it's establishing a new habit that is not easy. Right. You're not going to uh, so, the easier option, but it's a habit exactly. thing. Like you said, once you start getting to the habit of like on Sundays, I cook like no matter what, even if you start with right. one day, like Sunday, two hours, that's your time to, you know, cook, clean the kitchen, pack things up. And even if you start with just doing today's meal and tomorrow's breakfast, you'll find it so much easier because like my I'm getting into a tangent, I know, but like the crock pot for working is immaculate, um, a crock pot with the auto stop. I love the like crappy, you know, read my life story recipes online. And then there's an actual nice recipe there. It's like, hey, here's some tortilla soup you were probably never going to make. It's delicious. And all you got to do is prep the stuff. By the time you get home, you'll have some delicious. If you overcook it, knock, knock, it's even more tender. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and I've got like a lot of ground to cover on that front in terms of like learning how to do this kind of stuff where it is easy. Cause a lot of the times, <laughs> and Derek, you know this about me, hmm. like whenever I do something, I want to just like absolutely go all in. Yeah. You want to get it right. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I feel like that pursuit for perfection will like delay it. You know what I mean? It, it does. Yeah. It does. Um, yeah. So that's what's tough. But like, I'm, I'm just basically like what I'm doing right now is like, I'm like, okay, can we do, you know, like, 
couple nights a week where we're cooking in the house, you know, right. or, you know, make sure like I'm, I'm doing my breakfasts and my lunches at home. Uh, or at least, you know, even if they're, uh, like bagged, at least bagged. Right. Right. Like, so I'm not going out for those. Um, and a little and, like, frozen food goes a long progress. way. Like if you feel oh, like yeah. not cooking, like I've been on a weird kick where I've been trying all of Gordon Ramsay's brand frozen food. Cause I found it ironic. He said like six years ago, he'd never do frozen food. <laughs> it's actually really good. So if I'm ever like, you know, I fix my pop's food and I genuinely just don't feel like fixing myself or like continuing to cook, whatever. I'll just uh, have a couple of those in the freezer and it just stops me from doing the like DoorDash or, you know, mm. going to Popeye's and getting an eight piece combo I don't need. Right. right. Yeah, for sure. Good stuff, man. Yeah. Well, right, there's well, your preload that, for the last There's three the weeks. preload. Exactly. Yeah. We got to catch up. I got more stuff I could keep going about, but it's fine. We'll, we'll, we will save some stuff for next week. Yeah. One day so. we'll do oops all <laughs> preload for him. That's what the, the people want. That's what the people want anyway. So, all right. Well, Derek, well, I got Jim, a question for you. Jim, I might have an answer. Have you ever seen like shows on ice? Have, has that ever been like uh, something that you appreciate or enjoy? I've only been to one when I was a kiddo. But um, even now, I'd love to go to like, you know, any show on ice. I just think it's a cool experience. Yeah. That's fair. Do you do you happen to know what it was that you saw when you were a kid? Was it like Holiday uh, on Ice or something like that? I can I really couldn't tell you. I do all as a kid. I had to be like either eight or ten ish. So what I remember is ice. I got snacks, and there was a lot of folks ice skating, doing weird stuff like picking other people up and ice skating. And I was like, that's dope. I would just I would destroy myself on that ice. Heck yeah. So. <laughs> I don't know that I've actually ever seen an ice show in person, like uh, like Shrek on ice or whatever. Um, but what we're talking about today does take us uh, to a show on ice. Oh. Um, uh, this is, you might even say, a story, a song even, of ice and fire. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, get us the Game of Thrones fans in here. You like that? Hey, yo. I do. We're going to have to. Okay. I'm going to have to stop that tangent before it starts. Because <laughs> um, I could talk about how mad I am about the eighth season all day long. Oh, don't get me started. That's all. That's a spring in itself. It is. All right. Moving swiftly along. Maybe we'll have like a little bonus at the end where we talk about that. But anyway. Okay. So um, on October 31st, did you know that they're doing the holiday on ice since 1942? Oh, it's like a, it's a company thing. No, like no, no, like, no, 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 it's Holly on Ice is like the performance, right? Like it's a, it's an ice show that has, uh, it's like for the holiday type stuff. Uh, but they've been doing it since 1942 because the guy who basically made the portable ice rink wanted to have like a traveling show so that he could sell more portable ice rinks. Hey, that's a good business model. Yeah. So they were performing the holiday on ice at the Indiana state fairgrounds Coliseum uh, in October 31st, 1963, 4,000 people were in attendance at that particular performance. And um, it was obviously at night. So I want to pitch you, kind of put you in this, in this, in this, uh, in this Coliseum, right? All right. Paint so the picture you're, for me. you're hanging out. There's this ice rink in the middle. Everybody's like in the bleachers and all this stuff. Um, these the show had been scheduled to begin at 8.30, but started 15 minutes late. Unforgivable. Um, 
unforgivable. So, you know, you've got your popcorn, you've got, you know, whatever, your, your, your hot dog and your cola, yeah. whatever it was that they had in 1963. I went down to uh, the soda fountain. Exactly. I went down to the soda, had myself a pop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but the finale is finally about to begin. You're probably getting a little tired, like, but you're ready. Like, the show's exciting. It's exciting. 11 o'clock. It's 11 o'clock p.m. Finale is about to begin. At 11.06 p.m., you're sitting across the ice rink and you just see the other pair of bleachers explode as the finale is happening. When you say explode, like, collapse in on itself or, like, physically explode? Well, you know, I would mean, you know how I said this was a song of fire and ice? Oh, yeah, callback. Callback. So it's an actual explosion, and it flings bleachers and people towards oh. the ice. Oh, okay. If I saw that, do I get to finish my hot dog at least? You do. You still have your hot dog and your popcorn. Um, remember the popcorn, because it'll, it'll, uh, it'll become relevant later. Okay. But the explosion uh, destroys some of the stands, throws people off the ice, um, and the orchestra for the band continues to play. Is this a part uh, of the show? The orchestra continues to play, and people begin filing out of the Coliseum in actually a pretty orderly fa fashion, as it turns out. We get on them. Uh, as you're walking out, so you're like, maybe you're like a kid, right? Because it's like the whatever, and you're like walking out with your popcorn, and uh, your mom's kind of issue it, like shoving you along to, you know, keep moving. And as you're leaving, a second explosion goes off, creating a 40-foot fireball behind you as you're leaving the Coliseum. Did I look at the explosion because I'm just so cool? I just Exactly. You put your sunglasses on and walked away. Yeah, there you go. So this is the 1963 Indiana State Fairgrounds Coliseum gas explosion. Sheesh. And uh, this incident killed 81 people and injured 400 others. And it was, it is to this day, one of the worst disasters in the history of Indiana. That's like a 10% casualty rate if you count injuries, right? If yeah. 4, so, because it's 4,000 people there. Sheesh, uh, man. And so almost 500 people casualties and 81 fatalities. If I'm going so, to an ice rink for a show, I, I guarantee you the last thing I'm worried about is exploding. It's like, yes. I, oh, I could slip. Oh, it might be a little cold. I might get some hypothermia. Sure, whatever. No, I'm not thinking gas explosion. Mm -mm. Oh, no, wait. this is like da Daenerys is like Dracarys. And, you know, like, it's not good. It's not good. It's not good. So what ends up happening? So let me kind of give you the rundown of like what happened. Right. How did this happen? So. At the fairgrounds, there's obviously like, there's a lot of concessions going on, right? One of them being the popcorn stand. So this is the 60s, and a lot of these concessions were not electrical. They were all gas. And so they were running off of LP, liquid propane gas. Um, and five liquid propane tanks, 100-pound liquid pro propane tanks, were stored in a unventilated storeroom directly below the southern bleachers. Mm. Uh oh. One of these LP gas cylinders 
had been in use for over 10 years um, and had rusted out. And the um, and that had caused a failure in the safety valve at the top of the tank. And at some point, it fell over. So oh. it's now on the ground. It's fallen over, venting gas into this enclosed concession storeroom. So somebody smells gas, and they bring the... Um, they bring like the manager or whatever uh, to come like check it out, right? Right. Good. Good on that citizen for just being like, yeah, something's wrong. <laughs> hey, something's wrong. So the manager, the manager then um, opens the door and discovers this thick mist of propane fog in the like just in the in the the room. If you right? can see your flammable gas, you might have a problem. It's not good. Yeah, no. it's definitely not good. Uh, and so basically the entirety of the hundred pound propane tank had vented into the room. Um, at this point, uh, it, uh, the manager notifies several of the employees in the area and he begins like getting them away. One person goes into the room to try to stop the leak, uh, but is not successful and then leaves. And then what happens is basically this gas is now flowing out of this room actively and makes its way to a concession stand, a popcorn stand to be precise, where it touches basically the warming machine, like the actual like heating element, yeah. ignites and then explodes, causing the basically the vapor trail to lead back to the, the, that central room like a fuse below the gas in the room and then rupture several of the other containers immediately. And then the secondary explosion was the other two canisters rupturing and exploding after the fact. Sheesh. There's so many things wrong already. There's so many things wrong. It's the 60s. Like fire suppression isn't what it is today. Who the hell thinks they need a fire suppression system on ice? Like, yeah, and and um, it wouldn't have even helped because no. it was just immediate. It was boom, explosion. Not not a long lasting fire or anything like that. There was a fire that happened afterwards because right. you know it caught stuff on fire. But um, you know it just immediately, you know, three hundred pounds of propane basically go up. That's horrible. Um, I don't want that under my butt. Uh, but keep nope. it a buck with you. I don't want that <laughs> under my butt. There had to nope. be an explosion anywhere. I think that's the wrong place. That is the wrong place to put your flammable gases is right under the bleachers. Mm -mm. Let's talk a little bit about the, the response, the immediate response, because I think one of the things that is really outstanding about this is the response of, of <clears throat> the first responders, but also the people on the scene immediately. Okay. Um, Let's see how so they reacted. Basically, so basically, within a minute of the first explosion happening, there's an off-duty firefighter in the audience, right? And he telephones the headquarters of the Indianapolis Fire Department, and he informs them, right? So they are basically immediately aware, or very, very quickly aware of the situation. What a legend. And then, because of the way that the, um, the dispatchers for the Indianapolis Fire Department and and uh, Indianapolis police department work is they kind of like share dispatchers, right? So they're monitoring each other's calls. And so the Indianapolis police are also immediately aware. So they're able to get ambulances 
immediately in route to like very very quickly ambulances are in route to the host or to the uh the fairgrounds um as well as fire and first response yeah we gotta um, think this is before uh, obviously well before cell phones so this yeah. off-duty fire fighter who just happened to know the number find a landline get that that 60 seconds who knows how many Crucial. lives were saved just to have all that equipment on site what 10 15 minutes earlier Absolutely, because there's basically uh, in the immediate in the immediate explosion, there's like 50 people who are killed. Sheesh! And then afterwards, there's like 31 more people who then later die of their injuries. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to think about like triage, especially like to that level of trauma, like the body. And you you maybe can speak about this more effectively as a biologist or as kind of like, cause you were doing pre-med. Yeah, I did study stuff. pre-med and undergraduate. That was kind of the goal. So I guess, tell us a little bit about like how, cr- how crucial is like reaction time to like serious triage. Like it's this. essential. Uh, so you even experienced this a little bit. Remember when we did way back when like wilderness survival, um, there was like a wilderness first aid class. We taught a few times um, what they teach you. And it doesn't matter if you're, a field medic in the army in the middle of the war zone, or you're just at a hospital at your local city, getting the triage correct often saves more lives than you expect. Because the whole point for our our listeners, triaging is the act of, let's just say there's a big event like this fire. You have to very quickly understand the condition of all of the victims of that accident as fast as possible in an organized way. So two reasons. The right person gets the right treatment and you do it in the right order. That's the key. I don't want to accidentally start treating a laceration that's not necessarily fatal before the guy with cardiac arrest right next to me. Because the guy with cardiac arrest has way less time than the person who's barely bleeding out. And then on the flip side of that, if I have someone that's, you know, cut an artery and they're pumping blood out at extreme pace, I don't tourniquet that and get it under control, he'll die before the person with cardiac arrest. So... Thank your nurses. When you go to the ER and there's a hundred people there and everyone's getting pissy because, you know, there's not enough resources, at least not in America. And you're like, why? I'm in so much pain. I'm in so much pain. Why did he get to go in front of me? He just got here. Well, there might be an underlying condition there that, you know, they could be having a code blue. You're in a lot of pain, but you're able to talk to complain about it. Therefore, you're going to be lower on the triage list. Uh, if you talk to someone who was in the army, I can't speak on this. I'm not a military person, but I've spoken with folks that were combat medics and they talked about how fast the situation goes from the calmest day of your life to an active war zone. So unexpectedly getting that triage right while bullets are flying overhead. I can't imagine it. I can't fathom it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's really tough. Really? Um, that's all, that but is yeah, one of the most essential parts of first response. If you have multiple victims, right? That's the most response. important. Fast response and triage. Right. And, and order. Order of care. A nurse, this is going to sound morbid, but this is the reality of our bodies and our lives, right? If someone's already not responsive, not breathing, no pulse, no heart rhythm, me wasting 10 minutes, 15 minutes doing CPR on that person might affect the next five on my list. So being able to tag who's already deceased versus who's in critical condition and then, you know, down the scale, super important. Um, and you'll see this at any 
large site. If you look at footage of 9-11, there's so much like archival footage of the 9-11 uh, tragedy. You can see, you know, like New York uh, Fire Department, all of the local hospitals that had nurses on standby. They're sitting there really putting tags on people's toes and arms so that visually you can figure out the condition of this person from across the, like, you know, the field hospital that you set up and really quickly get them the care they need so that you can move on to the next person and stabilize them. Yeah. That's pretty intense stuff, man. It's something else, man. It's not everyone's made for it, but the folks who do, and that's their job every day, you know, give them, give them a hug if they want one the next time you see them because they're really doing this work every time they go into the hospital. Like, it's incredible stuff, truly. Absolutely. And same with, yeah, with, as we were saying earlier, like this guy, this off-duty firefighter who is able, who's situationally aware enough to immediately find a landline, pretty much instant, like almost immediately find a landline and call this in. Call for backup. And, and Exactly, you know, and then uh, I don't, I don't have the, I, I wasn't able to follow him specifically through this, but, uh, you know, probably I would imagine he stick, stuck around and helped. If I had to guess, yeah. he literally went to the nearest, uh, truck if he was a firefighter suited up and got down on the problem because that's just how fire you know you've met some firefighters they're cool as hell and they just they have this no restraint attitude on saving lives that i just have a lot of respect for and um absolutely you know we might have to ask joe if he wants to talk about one of these oh that'd be great oh, i'd love to get him on so Anyway, so moving moving forward again. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, like the ambulances, the hospitals are aware of this. The the police department, the fire department, everyone's aware of this like pretty quickly. Excellent. Um, and so they're on the scene. The first police car arrives on the scene at eleven fifteen, right? So within seven minutes, I think. Um, initial explosion at eleven oh six. Yeah. So basically, like eight nine minutes after the initial explosion first responders are on the scene so very very quick hmm. uh, even by today's standards that is I mean, that is really of. quick like if we call really the cops right response. now because someone kicks down your door and i know this is a very american thing to say that's why a lot of folks own guns for home security not because they want to hurt anybody but because if i call the cops right now i ain't gonna see them for 30 minutes yep a lot can happen in a small amount of time so this one firefighter kind of one setting up the hierarchy of first response and like getting communication pipeline out the fact that the indianapolis fire and police department were so well integrated in a time where we're still using switchboards to manage calls is one something to let's talk about the dispatchers they did their part and that one cop is thinking this is a different time for cops than what we're looking at today one cop can provide a level of crowd control especially during these times that is often scoffed about this same thing happens today in a modern arena. Let's just say it had 4,000 people. All of a sudden, you're talking about trampling deaths. You're talking about asphyxiation from crowd crush. There's so many other factors. The people staying calm and those two, I'll call the police officer and the fire person off duty, the two first responders there really set them up for a successful situation down the line. And I hope they got credit for that because that is huge. To not panic and just start thinking is trained not learned oh i was trained not innate right yeah absolutely um yeah it really is uh amazing like how coordinated and and like how 
clear headed this response was because it, it happened. Obviously, all this is happening very, very fast. Um, and, and like you're saying, like the the responsiveness, I guess, of the crowd is also very important. Yeah. When have you um, seen a crowd stay calm in our lifetime in a situation like this? Usually it's a mad oh rush gosh. for the door. Absolutely. And I'm sure there were people who bolted, but for for the most part, you know, at least from what I'm reading, like people stayed fairly calm um, and and started exiting in an orderly fashion from the Coliseum. And I don't, I don't have like the layout of it in front of me. So maybe there's just, there are enough exits that people could just leave from a lot of different directions. Four thousand people is nothing to scoff about. That's a that's huge not, yeah, crowd control problem. That's that a lot of people. most folks. I don't know if you've ever done um, event planning, but that's something that good event planners consider. Not just how people get in and out when everything's great, but in the case of an emergency, how do I get all these folks out of this wedding quickly and effectively yes. without causing panic? That is a hard. The venue is Absolutely. part of it, but that is a huge part of it. Like getting the crowd to react properly. Yes, absolutely. Man, Jim, so, put me on a rabbit hole on a Monday. I'm loving this. <laughs> hey, man, I'm down. I, I would love to hear you uh, speak more about uh, about what we're doing here. So, you know, I really, I'm, I fuck I'm with E-Prep. I love emergency preparedness. I, I My go bag is next to my bed. Maybe I'm crazy, but I learned the lesson when I was a kid, and it just kind of stuck with me. Yeah, man. I actually really enjoyed like the E prep merit badge. Like I thought that was a, I thought that was pretty cool. I will say of all the merit badges that I've gotten or like taught even later in life, wilderness survival and E prep fundamentally did more for me, I think, than most of the other fun ones. That's fair. Well, because I think it's just like you feel like okay, I kind of have like the tools to deal with this, mm-hmm. right? I don't. So panic. it. it Exactly. It's like, okay, like first, and and like the first thing that we teach about with both of those is basically like, don't panic. Like once you realize you're lost in the woods, don't panic. Once you realize an emergency situation is happening, don't panic. Stop. Don't panic. Take a breath, get your bearings, then move. Right. If Um, if moving at all. And um, it's a weird thing uh, in college. Um, My friends were not scouts. They weren't very outdoorsy folks. So I was often the person dragging them out of their interiors to see and touch some grass right and (laughs) it's interesting they gave me this nickname for a mode i have or allegedly have called they call it boy scout Derek, and (laughs) it's been described as you know i'm a fairly talkative person when i'm around folks i like uh stone cold like from time of emergency to i change personalities as it's been described uh i'll give a real quick story one time we had someone faint at our apartment during like a small party but among friends right and i in about five seconds caught this person like from borderline across the room because i just saw it happen like i saw the signs like they're looking a little tipsy like like they're not that drunk that doesn't make any sense to oh they're losing control and then i like caught them put them in a good position i was shocked the amount of folks who you know their first priority was you know hiding their alcohol because oh you're not supposed to be drinking in college or whatever like everyone had a different priority and panicking and like like packing up their stuff and i'm just in the zone all i see is this person and it looks so goofy to them, but literally I just like, I saw that they had a pulse, saw that they were breathing normally, gave them a little tap on the, on the face, just a little tap on the face. They woke right up confused. Apparently they had a, uh, you know, 
lock their legs, passed out. They have uh, low iron and a uh. bunch of other low blood pressure problems that cause them to pass out. Didn't know that. But seeing my reaction versus all of these people that I genuinely I trust with my life, I have to thank the Boy Scouts. I, I have to thank them for all of those lessons instilled so early. And I genuinely believe, Jim, if I chose, if, if being a doctor is what I truly want to do, I think I would be a good doctor or good PA or good nurse. It's just my 100%. goals have changed over the years. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. You would be an amazing physician of, of whatever type that you decided to be. Um, but yeah, so like that instant response is so critical. It's critical. Um, you, you don't have time to panic if you're the first responder. And you've we've dealt with emergencies together. Like we have, we can think of so many where I can think of one staff member who put an axe through his freaking shoe because he's an oh idiot. Oh my god! And you know that like instant pang of anger to concern to me and you looking at each other from across like a, a oh, for all geez. intents and purposes a small piece of woods and just getting the job done. That's what it's about. I'd man. fight with you any day. Uh, you know, if I had to be, <laughs> if my, if our Boeing 737 Max 9 crashes on the way to Alaska and we have to be in this survival situation, I'm glad Jim's on the plane. We might Hell have yeah, a chance. Brother. Hell yeah, brother. I remember the one that gets me, we're like, okay, this has just become a little bit, well, fine. I'm going to go into the tangent. We do whatever hey, we want. Hey, this might be a two hour episode. Y'all signed up for the this. One, <laughs> the one that I, I remember all the time, Derek is when we were having lunch at the dining hall. We were outside and um, we're just chatting. And then I see you just like laser focus in on something behind me and then leap over the table. And there was this kid who was like choking on his food and you just like Heimlich maneuvered him and then he was fine. Like, but like <laughs> the, just the, the, yeah, like your ability to go from just a completely normal conversation to just laser focused on the, the task at hand at the emerging emergency situation uh is phenomenal um i don't know and, uh, what causes that i don't know where it came from i'm gonna give scouts credit just because you know as you start they you know they train you and then you have this guide i have been described as boy scout derek to make the long story short multiple times throughout college and like trips and I don't think about it. Like the thing, I know the thing you told me happened because I remember being really tired, um, after the adrenaline went off, but I have no memory of the actual action. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't remember jumping over a table. I remember doing the Heimlich maneuver, but it's interesting that you got to see the response time there. I noticed something I didn't like identify that. Oh crap. Luckily we, we have an excellent staff with huge amount of medical expertise all around so he, the kid was great and he was really thankful he actually came back to camp years later and his dad was just like dude do you remember us i'm like i'm sorry we see so many folks like remind <laughs> me and he's like yeah you saved my life and that's a weird thing to hear yeah like, man I, I don't like that i know that sounds I, I no it's, i didn't <laughs> save your life like anybody on that staff would have done what i did i just happened to see it first that's all that was yeah but no i, well, hope but that I think inspires like that's to like learn like that's the critical thing about it to me though is like if you don't see it like that alone can be such a detractor of like survivability right like even like the the fact that because we were in a conversation yeah like, just like having lunch you know like having lunch and like we were engaged in a conversation between us and then 
the fact that you were able to to recognize, evaluate, and then correctly identify like this is an emergency, I think is a talent that uh, not everybody has. Um, I'm, I'm a good anyway. person to take on a trip with you. Um, I I don't know. I, I know we're getting on tangents, but I don't care. Like this is our podcast. I spent <laughs> a lot of time, Jim, the last few years uh, battling myself. Because I know I can go to med school. I know I can do it, but I don't want to. And yeah. for the first time in my life, I've had to consider the what I want, which, as you know, is not something I usually do. It's usually everyone else around me. Um, the emergency situation thing, if I can find a way to harness that in a form that's not necessarily the medical field, if that makes sense. Like if we get drafted tomorrow, I know I could be a combat medic. I know I could. Even if I'm going to go get shot in the face, there's nothing that's going to stop me from getting to that Marine or whatever. Like, it's just how my brain's operating. I don't know why. You've seen it. I'm glad you're on this podcast because you've actually witnessed this. Um, I, I remember have, there yeah. was one time we had a situation where uh, someone fell off the uh, cope and climbing tower. Like, there yeah. was a failure. And this I kid hearing about falls. That. And, you know, I get one of the health officers pulls up to my cart and it's just like, I don't have time to explain. Get on channel two. Follow me. And I was like, let's go get on channel two. She briefs me on the what's going on as we're going up the hill. And it was a really surreal moment for me where these actual EMTs, these actual trained paramedics asked me my opinion on how we should handle this person. I made the decision. I don't think we should move him no matter what. I'd rather the ambulance truck up this hill. We'll get him on a yep. backboard. We should not be trying to carry him down this hill or put him on a cart. Let's wait for 100%. emergency services just in case, right? Just in case he has a neck or back injury. Luckily, he was fine. He was just a little shaken up, but we got him on a, you know, backboard brace and the uh, you know, ambulance came and took him away. And I just think about all the times I've been in the right place at the right time for just something like that. But I also, it makes me think of the dichotomy all the times I wasn't. How many times have I left a party 10 minutes before a disaster struck, right? Like, Nothing I can do about it, but it's something that weighs on the mind. I've, I can proudly say, even though I've never technically worked as a medic, right? Like in unofficial terms, I've volunteered and such, uh, did trainings, but, um, I've saved four or five people's life that I can remember. And I'm proud of that. Like just having the skill. Yeah. And that's if I ever do have kids, I want them to be able to go out into this world. And the only thing they have to worry about is if they get hurt, who's going to take care of them? Because if someone else is around me, if it's, it could be the worst situation. I'll try to make it as good as I can, given the tools and opportunity of the time. And I think you're the same way, Jim. Like, your reaction speed in the shop, I think this is where it translates to you. Where It, it could be a, a kid that we're teaching, or it could be me, where you see me about to make a mistake on a table saw just because you've watched this table saw and this kind of activity so many times. You're noticing me doing something wrong before it even registers that I'm putting myself in danger or like someone else is putting themselves in danger. And I think that awareness is super useful. It's really important. And I, I'm going to talk about it because like, I'm glad you brought that up. I completely forgot about that kid. I hate that. I can't yeah. even remember his name, but for me, it's just another day on the job. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think I, I actually, I find this really interesting because I feel like I've never really been tested in the same way that you have. Right? Like, I've always been on the side of the table just by happenstance that's facing away from that kid. You know, like I feel like someone's always beat me to it. Like I've never really had that chance, which I guess on the one hand I'm, I'm happy about, right? Like I'm glad that there have been 
like, not that I, not that I haven't had that opportunity. I'm glad that I've not been. Did you haven't had to use the skills? I, yeah, I guess like I'm glad that people aren't getting hurt around me or aren't getting into danger around me as much. I guess is maybe a better way to put it. No, that's fair. Um, you know, but uh, I feel also like I am I am surrounded by people who are extremely capable. Uh, that helps you know, a lot. You, which does help a, a lot as well. So it's just kind of, um, but yeah, I mean, like it's just such a wild situation of, of um, you know, it's the right place in the right time. Right. And uh, it's, it's if you're there at the right place in the right time, do you have the wherewithal like to react? Because like, I'll yes. admit, I'm not the best emotionally in like, relationships and stuff someone starts screaming at me i get frazzled like i get nervous genuinely but for some reason when it's life or death and i recognize that something comes out of me that i didn't teach if i didn't work on i don't know if it's a result of past trauma or like just how i grew up and like some of the family dynamics i had but no um emergency preparedness is i would say 10 percent equipment being available 90% how you react. Absolutely. Yeah. And th so this like kind of this to me, what it reminds me of like, so my uncle Bob who you've met, yeah. you know, one of the things he says is, uh, in relation to like success, right. Is it's luck, timing and talent. Mm. And in that order, never forget the order. Right. Look, I'd rather and be lucky than good any day. <laughs> that's fair but like but what he meant by that is not that like luck is everything right but what basically what he means when he says this and it it, it translates to these emergency situations as well is basically if a situation presents itself and you're there at the right time do you have the talent and the ability to execute mm-hmm Right. And like, that is so critical because like, let's replace you, Derek, across the table from me at lunch with somebody less capable. Uh, I'm not going to name any yeah, names, but like, just for example, right. But someone whose first reaction isn't, let me jump across this table and perform, you know, life-saving treatment. It's let me stand up and scream or let me like whatever. Right. And then, you know, it just takes that much longer to get this kid the treatment that he needs. Right. Um, so think about it. You scream right. 18 people like stand up at the same Look time. Look at you. <laughs> You're taking but away from the you. emergency. And you see this in modern crowds. Like, I don't know if you've been to concerts where something's happened, right? Uh, uh, one more story and I'll leave it alone. Uh, I, I went to EDC. It's a festival, like a music festival. And I had gotten there late with one of my buddies. We had tests and stuff. So we drove down after our group. So we're looking for our group in this huge crowd. I'm, I have not been at the venue for five minutes and sure enough, I'm walking across and this girl goes from standing up vertical dancing to just on the ground, borderline seizing. And I won't call myself the first responder in that situation. I was just the first competent person who was sober enough to get someone's attention. Like I literally like almost pulled a cameraman off the stand because he was like, I was trying to get his attention. He was like kind of shooing me away. And I jumped up there and I was like, we have an emergency situation right here. I need you to get on your radio and call for help. And he did. And I just think yeah. all that crowd, all these people, Patty, I got three of her, I assume her friends, like pretty much battling against me because I'm just some dude. Right. And I'm like, I'm yeah, trying to absolutely. help her. 
move out of the way, please. Just so I can understand what's going on. Cause she's going to get trampled. Like there's, this is a huge amount of people and it's just odd. I've, for a while, I thought these events follow me, but you're right. It is just right place at the right time. Seven other people walked right past the same thing I saw. They just didn't know what they were looking at. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's like, to me, like what it is, is, you know, these first responders in this situation, they knew exactly what they were looking at. Mm -hmm. Uh, They immediately identify this as a gas explosion and they immediately get the right services on the way. That firefighter Um, came in clutch. The fact that he spent his time off and just happened to be there probably saved more lives than we'll ever know. We just, absolutely. we just I mean, don't know. Well, because you, you think about it, right? Like some guy, you know, gets his arm fucking blown off in this explosion. You know, how long does it take to bleed out? Like, like <laughs> you know, depending on how bad the laceration is, a minute or less. You know, so what artery did yeah, you Exactly. Like you're talking about literally, you know, the difference of, of lives being lost, you know, instead of the 81 that were lost, maybe Could have been hundreds or or more even had that response been delayed even 20 minutes. Like in the case of the arm blown off example, like even someone having the wherewithal to just rip their belt off and tighten that thing down one good time, even if they do it incorrectly, gives you life-saving minutes to help that guy or person. Like it's, I I don't know if that, I'm not afraid of the medical field is the weird part. It's not like, oh, the blood and guts. I've, I've gone through like interviews and rotations where I have gone home in scrubs covered in every substance that a human produces. I'll leave it at that. And I think yeah. about the nurses that do this as a career. They do go all the way through and the doctors and they see all this stuff to not be desensitized and also be able to relax in public situations is a skill that I don't think I have um, mm. that they do to be able to just turn yeah. the switch off when you're out of the hospital. Incredible. A huge psychological feat, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, let's get back on topic. Uh, otherwise, this is going to be a two-hour episode, which I'm not mad about. But, you know, anyway. So basically, first car, first police car arrives on scene at 11.15. Um, by 11.23, there's a request for, like, tow, crane, tow trucks and cranes to, like, lift debris off of people who are trapped. Hmm. Um, there's also like starting to be like people who are uh, like, there's a lot of people moving around again. There's like 4,000 people. So like they have to start setting up like procedures. Like this is how people are getting in and out of this stadium, like the parking lots and everything, because now like the, the ambulances, as they're starting to do their rotations, cause they're basically just going back and forth to the hospitals. Um, and there's like also like army ambulances and stuff that are called in from a nearby uh, army base and, and like that kind of thing. But, you know, basically they have to start coordinating the, uh, the movements on the ground as it were. Right. So they set up, uh, basically they set up like a triage site on the West side, uh, of the field by the Coliseum, basically because they've got ambulances coming in from the North and then exiting West. Okay. So they're setting up like this pathway, and then they've got fire assets and, and rescue assets coming in from the south and the east, as well as, um, you know, like family members, basically, to try to start IDing bodies, um, start coming in. And so that's all happening, uh, basically, from 1123 onward. Um, 
they finally get cranes. Uh, basically, the first crane arrives at 12.50 a.m. They actually have to source it from like a local like equipment rental company uh, because they didn't have emergency cranes, right? Because it's like how, like you just don't think about needing emergency cranes, right? Right. Um, but basically by 11.30 p.m., only 10 people who are injured are still in the arena. Everybody else is out. Really? That Everybody, is outstanding. Every, it is outstanding. And base, yeah, so basically there's very, very quickly the triage center is set up. Um, and then like the coroner arrives at 11.45 and is one of the first like actual physicians present and starts helping to direct. They set up a uh, like a... This is kind of gruesome, but they set up like a temporary morgue on the ice. No, necessary. Uh, like, so you have to I guess move like, bodies out of the way after you triage them. There is no point. I mean, people don't like the truth of death. They don't like the truth of emergency situations. I don't have time to care about how it looks. I don't yeah. like any battlefield that's going on actively anywhere in the world right now. Actual battlefield. There is a morgue. There is a burial site because the war is not going to stop. That's the yeah. sad part. Like, you don't have time to be tripping over bodies. It makes more sense to have everything organized and for closure for the families. If you or your loved one was in an emergency, wouldn't you like to know day one That's instead true. of waiting for weeks and never getting the closure you need? Yeah, that would really, really be terrible. Um, so anyways, um, basically, the cleanup efforts and stuff, uh, by midnight, pretty much everybody is... Um, like in the triage, uh, emergency triage area or, or better. And they're starting to move people out. Uh, by 1 a.m., all wounded individuals have been removed from the site and taken to hospitals. Hmm. So again, two like hours. very, very rapid response. Yeah, two hours, just under two hours. Um, and mind you, this is 1963 much. tech. We're working yeah, with this in is 1963, pulling gurneys absolutely. off of a like you know old ambulance and mm -hmm. booking it. Yeah, and, and this was this was right, and there's like 400 people. Yeah, right. That's a you know, lot of folks to treat. That's a lot of people. So I mean, these yeah, they were really doing. doing Shout really out to well. the Indianapolis Fire and Police Departments in the '63 because I mean, for, and also there's one unnamed character. I'm sure there is an emergency management coordinator. Um, in every disaster, there is some either federal level or state level, like you said, who's going to pull the reins? Who is the person right. in charge? Who does everyone go up to in hierarchy? This is something you see it with multi-jurisdiction uh, disasters. Is the FBI in charge if it goes on federal land? Is, the, uh, is FEMA in charge if it's that scale? This is why it's important to have a very clear and defined uh, emergency structure hierarchy so that there is no, you know, well, I'm doing, no, get your pride out of it. We got lives to save. Um, exactly. Stand down if you have to. And, and one of the things that I, yeah, so to that end, basically the, the people who take uh, basically like charge of the situation immediately really is the Indianapolis police chief. Hmm. So he's on site, even though this is actually, so what ends up happening later on in the evening is basically um, because the the state it's a state fairground, uh, jurisdiction ultimately lies with like the state police. Okay. Uh, but basically, during like the transition of of that authority does not happen until three a.m., 
which is well past all the wounded people are off uh, or out, out out of the property, basically, right? They've been taken care of. Right. So basically, the, one of those the things that is remarkable and, and commendable here as well is like, there's no dick measuring contest. Mm -hmm. There's no, hey, this is my scene now. It's like, no, this person's been on the scene since literally like they 10, have the 15 minutes after the explosion. They are the one in charge right now. And then, you know, like we're all just helping out right. as best we can. Yeah, that's just efficiency. Um, you don't have time to do a dick measuring contest. And I, th I think there's a loop, right? Some doctors and nurses, they get to this point where they do know a lot more than everyone else. But they are yes. afraid because of what they've seen to uh, pass down control to someone who may be more qualified for that moment. Mm, and that's I a tough that is something they teach you in med school. Uh, just because you're the highest ranking doctor, if it's a cardiological event and you're the hospital director that did neurology their whole life, maybe your lead cardiologist is the guy. Yeah, it ain't you, buddy. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, for sure. It is very situationally dependent. Like, and I'm glad we're talking about E. I could do a whole mini series on E. Prep. This is a passion of mine that I've just loved so much. The dynamics of a emergency triage situation, or at least a medical emergency, there are so many moving parts that you even just mentioned. Uh, how the ambulances get in and out. How are we controlling non-hurt people so they don't become the second victim? Right. All yes. of these things come. How do we make sure that the scene's actually safe? How far away do we need to be? All of these things have to be trained because you can't make that decision that day. You got to make it five months ago during the training course. So it's in your mind and all your teams. Yep. And this accident, this is, uh, I will say, like kind of one of the, from what I can gather, it is kind of one of these moments that really starts people thinking about, okay, well, how are we conducting these large scale events? what safety measures are in place um, and, and how do we prevent this kind of thing from happening again? Um, you know, so like one of the things, for example, I'll, you know, it's just, I'll just say is the, basically they, they end up like with a grand jury that like kind of looks into this, mm -hmm. but one of the things they say is like, you cannot store propane under bleachers anymore. Such right? a simple thing. But <laughs> until something like this happened, it was never a problem. Ventilation would have solved this problem too, but it makes more sense just to keep the flammable gases away from, I don't know, massing groups of people, just in case. Yeah. Never know. Exactly. And, and like that's a, even one of the defendants' defenses is like basically they'd been doing this for 10 years and then nothing had happened. So it was fine. Yeah. But it wasn't. It's like, complacency. It it's like you just don't know until was. there's a. So think about it. If they, even if it never smelled like gas, how would you know? Yeah. How would you know? Lessons learned, and I bet a lot of other stadiums probably saw this on the news or like it's in the newspaper and was just like, yeah, this is, we're going to have to change our maintenance area. We're going to have to change our storage area. You're right. There is no ventilation in here. It's just a closet. It's just a closet. Yeah. And, and so it changes the, a lot of kind of operating procedure. Um, I don't know that any laws really come out of this, um, but uh, there's definitely... Yeah, there's definitely like policy, like like in terms of storage of flammable materials. There's some pretty express like restrictions now on where you can and cannot store liquid propane and, and like pressurized gas cylinders, explosive or flammable or explosive gas cylinders around these types of events. And some of that stems from this incident here. Mm. Um 
Yeah, so so the families of the victims and stuff like that, they're awarded four and a half million dollars in settlements. And then uh, the company ad- ad- additionally pays another three and a half million in out-of-court settlements uh, for this. There were 413 lawsuits that were filed against the insurance companies and the state of Indiana uh, for damages. And the cumulative basically like amount of settlement uh, is $70 million. Uh, a lot of money. Um, but uh, how can you replace the lives uh, of those people? You know? Yeah. Um, uh, we said it. Well, I said it before on this show. I mean, you don't like to think about it, but you are a dollar amount based on your characteristics. You want to think of it as a skill tree. You're a dollar amount to the insurance company. You're a dollar amount to companies like they don't like no. the, you don't want to dehumanize people by saying that. But I think it's important for workers to understand the system that they are in. Right. Yeah. You can have the best manager of the world. They're fighting against the same system you are. Um, to keep you safe, because well, the 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 fact of the matter is that manager is also a dollar number on, on the system, just maybe a little bit more because of their position. But yeah, this is the reality. People yeah. don't. If you don't take anything from this episode, take what I take the way I'm saying this. Even if it's you're not signing up for a course, go do the YouTube Red Cross first aid training over the course of a week just to know. I never. I thought when I learned you know, Red Cross first aid when I was a kid for the first time, like when I think you can take it at 13. I never thought I'd use it, to be honest with you. I was like, maybe if I do lifeguarding more, sure, but never thought I'd use it. And sure enough, lessons I learned when I was 12 or 13 years old, even younger as a Cub Scout, without thinking I've used that knowledge, I've gotten us back on track, even if it's something as simple as directions on a road trip. Do that for yourself and become the human that can help instead of being in the way. Yep. At the very least, this is one thing I meant to mention with the big festivals and stuff. How hard is it for to get someone to call the police? It's one of the first things they teach you if you're dealing with like a CPR situation. You don't yep. say somebody call the cops because then you get that bystander effect where, oh, someone next to me will do it. No, you get up in someone's grill, respectfully, and tell them, hey, you, <laughs> guy with the green hat that I'm looking at five feet away, call the cops right now and point at them. And it's a little extreme at the time, but it it puts that fire under an ass of, I'm putting this responsibility on you. Not, I didn't say anybody, you. And it, it really does help save those precious seconds, because if I'm trying to do see, I, I can think of another example that my roommate and I were at the bar. We were just moved into Atlanta. We were roommates in college. We moved in. We're like, finally, let's relax. Two dudes start overdosing on fentanyl. Of course, we don't know this at the time. We didn't know this as it's happening. I asked, and I'm for reference, black dude in the South. Last thing I'm trying to do is run at a police car. I asked my white roommate, Hey, Run after that police car and grab his Narcan kit. Get him over here now and get an ambulance. And I told my roommate that. He ran. I started doing CPR. I was super lucky. There was an anesthetician that just rolled up. So he was able to take control of the situation. After I saw that someone was more qualified than I am with a license, I was just his hands at that point. Doesn't matter if I'm the first responder. I trust his judgment more than mine. And it was... A situation where death could have happened. I think that guy saved those two people's lives with our, we were doing CPR for 15, 30 minutes. Wow. And by the wow. time, before I left the restaurant, both of them were resuscitated. 
It's just I one of those it. things. You never know. I've had to deal with emergency situations drunk, where it's just like, <laughs> I am the best choice, and it sucks. I'm trying to have a good yeah. time, but it's either I do this now and wait for cops to or the ambulance to get here, or someone dies. Mm-hmm. It's just not, it's not in the cards. Yeah. I, I, you know, you think about it, it's interesting, right? Because like you can think about it as a burden, but also like imagine the burden of not being able to do that. Right. Right. Like imagine like literally having to watch somebody, you know, die of fentanyl overdose or, or choke on their own food or, or whatever, or pass out and hit the floor and crack their head open with this situation, and not be able Jim, to do anything. I, with a hundred percent honesty, I can tell you, I was doing what I was trained to do, but I did not think there was anything I could do, if that makes sense. Mm. I'm so happy that someone more prepared and more knowledgeable came by to help keep us on the right track because there were two victims. I can only do CPR on one person at a time. Right. You only have one set of hands. That event, and that was recent. That was within the last two or three years since I moved out of the house. I think about these things, and I just hope that one day, if it's me on the other side of that, there's a Boy Scout Derek around, for example. Yep. Because that's my biggest, like, one of my side worries at parties and stuff is like, what if I'm the guy that goes down? Will yeah, anyone like, help me? Absolutely. You know, or are they just going to pack up their drugs and tr- skedaddle before the cops come? Here. Like, it's just one of those things. You don't, I, uh, I don't know, Jim. That is one weird section of my life I can't explain. No, that's fair. Well, because, like, I, I think it's the curse of competence, right? <laughs> Right, because like you have a certain level of skill, um, and and you're aware that most people around you do not possess that level of skill. It's not a pride thing. It's the, I've sat through the well, course. It's not a pride thing at all. No, no, no. It's no. not a pride thing at all. It's just the fact, right? Like the fact of the like, matter is, if me? you pull, if you pull ten people off the street, how many of them are going to be at your level of of uh, like emergency? I would just say first aid, right? just, even just first or just aid first skills. Aid. You know? Yeah, but like, you know, out of out of 10, 15, let's just say 100, out of 100 people, I would say you pull them off the street. 10% would be a dream. I don't think it's 10%. Uh, yeah, I think you're probably going to get one. You know, like yeah. one out of every 100 people are, are probably going to be able to help in that situation. So it's hard. I don't think it's. It's hard yeah, to tell people they're wrong in an emergency situation. I remember that, that EDC event, there was this guy starting to do CPR on this girl. And I, you know, he, he was clearly inebriated and I had to very like sternly tell him to stop. You're hurting her. She's breathing. She doesn't, she has a heart rhythm. She doesn't need CPR. We're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of, some people are trying to be the hero. Some people don't want to be the hero. I'd rather yeah. never save a life again. Not because I don't want to, but that means I've gone through a life where nothing else bad happened around me. I recognize exactly. at 25, the fact that I was able, I will say four people I would, say for certain um just right timing right place and where we were there was an emergency personnel close enough to put them in a good situation right right and um i'm on one hand very happy that i was there i'm happy that i got the skills that someone i I, on the shoulders of folks that trained me right learning something because i thought it was interesting like you humans are tools powerful powerful tools you have the ability to create and destroy Use that for good. If you can, if you don't get anything else from this goddamn podcast, use whatever that thing is you're good at for good. Just once in your life, it'll change the way you look at the world. I guarantee it. Hell yeah, brother. I like it. Well, I think on that note, Derek, 
Let's bounce. Let's bounce.